Welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm Lee Rennick, Executive Director, CIO Communities for CIO. And I'm very excited to welcome Manfred Brudeau Demma, CIO, NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Manfred, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your current role. Hello, it's great to talk to you, Lee. Um, yes, so my name is Manfred Budrodema. I'm the NATO Chief Information Officer for now almost two years. September the 1st, it's going to be two years. Um, so I'm the first Chief Information Officer for NATO, and a lot of people ask me, so how come there wasn't one before? And the answer is that it's a very decentralized organization, right? NATO is almost 75 years old, um, you know, so it has a it has a certain age, and IT has grown very organically over the past 75 years or so. And so now a decision was made a, a few years ago to bring on a CIO to harmonize IT within the NATO enterprise. And so harmonization goes across uh, enterprise architecture, technology choices, coordinated portfolio management, coordinated um, service level agreements, and, and those kind, kind of things. And then... Uh, as I was actually waiting for my security clearance, one day I got a call from the um, from the person who ran the, the hiring process and said, oh, and by the way, uh, we have just expanded your mandate to include cybersecurity for the NATO enterprise. So I'm now also what's called the um, single point of authority in NATO speak for cybersecurity for the NATO enterprise, the top level risk uh, management owner and also the um, incident, top-level incident manager. So that's kind of that's kind of my mandate. And uh, yes, so it has been two years, and so far it has been a lot of fun. So um, let me know uh, what I can expand on, Lee. Well, I am so excited to have you here. I really appreciate you joining us here, Manfred. We've created this series to support the technology leader in their tech and leadership journey. So the first question I ask everyone, and we had a chance to chat earlier, and you've got a really interesting career path, but could you talk a little bit about your own career path and provide some insights on that road path? Are there any lessons learned you could share? Yes. So um, let's go back all the way to the beginning. So my very, very first job was to be a computer programmer in the mid to late 90s at a Bavarian company that was founded in 1642, I believe. And it was a very interesting job because it had business processes from the 17th century, I would say, and uh, the company longer, no longer exists. So I can kind of you know tell you a little bit more about that. But it was a classic um, programmer job on an IBM mid-range technology um, platform. And then from there, I moved on and I got a job at um, Compaq Computers at the international headquarters in Munich. I was a business analyst for material planning systems, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I changed with Compaq to Houston, and I started working at the Latin American headquarters for Compaq for the next nine years. And so the headquarters was in Houston, but subsidiaries in all of the Latin American countries and did a lot of different parts in IT, supply chain systems, finance systems, e-commerce was coming up a little bit at that time as well. So I did that until 2002 and then Compaq NHP merged. And um, then I did business analysis kind of like data um, data sciences at that time it was business analysis for for HP 
and um, then did strategy and planning for supply chain systems and strategy and planning at a, at a larger global application development and support systems um, organization. And then I left HP and I joined a mid-sized company in 2010, Sierra Wireless in Vancouver, Canada. And I ran IT for Sierra Wireless um, globally for 11 years until 2021. And that's when I came to NATO. And I think, Lee, the second part of your question was, what did I learn along the way? Yes, exactly. So, um, yes. So going back all the way to like the mid 80s, um, one thing that I learned was don't obsess over school. And and I tell that to a lot of people because I was not um, very focused when I was in my younger years really on school. And, and I... I kind of got away with that. And then later I, I I kind of rectified that and I I went back to school. But there's a lot of stress, I think, that that young people put themselves through. It's kind of like, oh my God, you know, what's going to be my major? What do I study? What do I and it's kind of like it uh, I think the more we obsess over that, the less helpful this is. Mm. So one lesson is don't really obsess um that much over school. Things will fall into place. And then just again, to kind of go back to my resume a little bit. So 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I had the big revelation. It's like, all right, it's now or never. So I went I went back to school and I did my MBA with uh, Duke University, North Carolina. And then I continued and I did a master in business and management research at the University of Reading in the UK. And I just very recently finished my doctorate in business administration. So that's as of February the 1st of this year. So now I've, I've kind of, you know, focused on that a little bit, but later in the career, and now I'm, I'm done with school, pretty much, I can, I can tell that. And so second thing that's really important is jump, jump at opportunities. Um, and I see that quite a bit. Um, when I see applications come in for the, for the many jobs that we have in the office of the CIO. So we're on a big hiring spree. And I also see a little bit of a, of a gender difference there as well. So I, I sometimes see, especially female applicants, if they don't have all of the required or desired attributes for the job, it's it, I kind of see some hesitation for people to apply. And it's really important that even if you are not like perfect on paper for the job, you still need to apply, you still need to jump, you still need to reach. And so um, earlier I talked about working at Compact Latin America. I, I, the job required Spanish. My Spanish was, I could order a beer in the Mexican <laughs> restaurant, but it, it really didn't go beyond that, right? And I still kind of reached for it. And then later, you know, I, I built out the Spanish and I had, I had other experiences um, where you just have to try and you have to reach and um, and kind of with the NATO job as well. I found it on LinkedIn. I was convinced that I was not going to get this job. I mean, I have no public sector experience. I have no military experience. I've been in the private, private industry for all my life. Um, and I was shocked when I was invited for to participate in the selection process. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm probably going to be the token external candidate that you know, is going to be participating. But I really decided to lean into this opportunity and then give it my very best in all of the various tests and interviews and, and things that came. And so and so that worked out. So if you if you feel that you can reach 
the requirements of the job if you feel it then go and reach it and then and then do everything possible to um to get to there so the next thing that i would say is 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 excellence and it almost sounds a bit cliche right be the best that you can be the element of excellence i think should be in everything that we do i mean if you are a network administrator strive to make your network to be the the very best the most efficient the most secure the most optimized network that there is on the planet if you write if you write a, a user guide user documentation make it as such where you constantly strive that this is a Pulitzer Prize winning user guide, right? It, it's in everything that, that one does, it's it's kind of a striving towards towards excellence. And one tool, just a, a little thing that uh, that helps me kind of be on this continuous journey, right? Because you'll you'll never really arrive. It's it's just something that you do. And so what what I do is journaling. So I sit down every morning, I get up early and i journal and it's not a kind of like dear diary you know this is what i ate yesterday but it is a how could i have done x y or c better yesterday and what can i do today to kind of improve on that so it's it's a bit goes kind of deep into where do i think i need to improve and, and do things better so that's the uh that's kind of the concept of excellence and then lastly i would say it's lead deliberately really think about what kind of leader you want to be um what is important to you what is acceptable to you what is not acceptable to you um how do you work with other people how do you um create a vision rally people around the vision so be really deliberate about who you are and how you how you work with people and and lead the, with deliberation you are inspiring me so much right now. I have a mantra that aligns so much to what you've just spoken about, and that is we can do better. We can always do better. So that's 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 my point of view all the time. So when you talk about that, but what I find really interesting in your career is, you know, you started out in this tech space and then obviously you, you transitioned into consulting and doing some more business, you know, project management. And, and, you know, a lot of the CIOs I speak with globally are talking about this idea of the CIO being ambidextrous or bilingual, so understanding both business and technology. I think a lot of the principles you just talk about are, are, are just that, bringing the business knowledge, the aspect in. That idea of journaling is something that I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about soft skills, so the ability to think, to process, to... Uh, contemplate your next step, your next move as a leader, how you can be better, just totally inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really, really appreciate it. You're um, very welcome. That was really amazing. And so we we did have a chance to chat earlier about leadership and technology and, and um, you've transitioned into your current role at NATO from working in the telco and tech industries. And, and really, as you mentioned, this is your inaugural role as a CIO at NATO. So congratulations for that. That must just hold a lot of responsibility. Um, so I speak with a lot of CIOs about getting a seat at the boardroom table. And you and I talked about that, about you know being in that boardroom meeting, how to navigate all of that from a leadership standpoint. Well, in your case, you hold a seat with 31 nations, almost 32 around the world who make decisions by consensus. And we talked about that. And you know, you're know, you leading from a global positioning of technology. So could you talk a little bit about some of the ways your leadership skills have evolved, any tips you could provide um, for those who really wanna have a seat at the boardroom table? 
Yes, uh, I think there are probably a couple of questions in that question. One is <laughs> how how have leadership just kind of like what's the philosophy on on leadership? And it's 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 interesting. I mean, when I when I started out as a leader and and also as a manager, which is not the same as leadership, but they're they're somewhat related. And this was I think it was in 1996, and I had kind of like a small team of five people. I just thought okay, those are going to be like five mini-me's, so like five, five copies, and then what? whatever I do, and it's going to be the same output times five, and this is all going to be just great. And it does not work like that. So it, it's not it's not carbon copies of, of a person who then kind of do the same thing. So that was the first realization that came. And um, at that time, I also worked in an environment that was, that was fairly... Um, it kind of hierarchical and and a bit of command and control and all of these things. And I kind of thought that, well, you you would get something, kind of a task on your desk, and then you have to translate that, and then you give out the task to um to other people. And it was later, um, kind of when I did other things at Compaq and at HP that I realized that it's really it's really quite different. So I think as a leader, it starts with um you need to be a painter. I think you need to you need to collectively come up with your team and define a vision that is in line with the business vision, but it is for IT. There is kind of no such thing as as just an IT vision. It needs to be fully uh, supported and part and parcel with a business vision. And then you need to paint that on the sky, and that is the North Star. And I think you need to refer to the North Star at all times, right? And always be able to calibrate the entire organization almost like like magnets towards that that one north star that's 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 painted at the sky regardless of what happens right there needs to be this this guiding principle and and this guiding star i think you need to be an architect um at the same time and that is to to really define a self-sufficient organization that that relies on its own judgment at various levels um where you set the vision and then you kind of help executed but you largely let the organization in itself loose to to achieve that that vision i think you need to be a catalyst so whenever there are stumbling stones in that path um roadblocks things that you can remove connections that you need to forge with other departments or with other entities um, that is also an important part of of the leader i think you need to support an encouraging open um psychologically safe, um, very supportive environment where everybody is enabled at a very basic level to give uh, to give their very best. And then you need to manage all stakeholders. It's not just a, okay, I'm the leader, I'm telling you what to do. And it's, it's a broad management of the different stakeholders that are that are in place. Now, I think the first part of your question, Lee, was how do you get a seat at the boardroom table? And Everybody wants that. And I, I I totally get that because I'd always, you know, when I worked in the private industry, it's like, oh, you know, wouldn't it be great to to be on the board? And it's almost a little bit the wrong question to ask. I think the board is the cart and making yourself heard is the horse. So let's not put kind of the cart before that horse. And what I mean by that is you, you need to contribute with 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 something that you know, something that is of value to you, insights that you have 
things that are of interest to your IT peers or business counterparts. And if you do that, if you bring your lessons, your insights, your ideas, your passion forward in conversations, very soon, I think the head of the department will listen, right? And then you go a step further and then the CFO, the CMO, the COO, whoever will listen. And then the CEO is going to listen and she will ask you uh, questions and and. Before you know it, the CEO is going to take you in front of the board, and then, then that's where you that's where you contribute. So it's really a, it's almost a little bit like the analogy when you talk to really really successful people that have made a lot of money, and they're like, and you ask them how did you make all this money, and they say, you know, it's really not about the money. You need to do what you love, and then money will follow. Follow, and so I think you need to constantly communicate your ideas and bring your contributions forward and a seat at the board will follow. So that almost sounds like a personal branding in a way, as well as a personal branding uh, opportunity, like ensure that you're, you're, you're speaking, you're building your knowledge, you're presenting it in a way that, you know, people will begin to see your positive impact on the team. And in that way is almost, and many CIOs talk about the need for personal branding. And I think that shifted a lot, you know, uh, post COVID because during COVID the CIO became more of an integrated leader into the overall business because IT became so such a bigger part of, of and digital transformation of the business. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that very, very much. And um, I'd love to talk next about digital transformation. So mm -hmm. I know you're working to drive digital transformation at NATO to build enterprise solutions and service delivery and really build cohesion across some multi-domain operations. Can you talk a little bit away about some of the ways as a leader you look to build processes for people and technology that really builds long-term strategy for IT solutions? Let me bridge the previous question with yes. this question because it, okay. it, it also kind of relates a little bit to the to the previous question. One thing that is very important is language. So earlier I talked about, you know, that that's the horse, that's the cart, and you got to communicate, communicate. You need to communicate in the right language and that is the language of the business and that's why i think going to school doing an mba even you know if you come from a technical background there's some some good value in that um and i knew at, at some point in time i worked for chief financial officer of of a company and i knew that i had to come to him with with facts and figures and data and uh, internal rate of return and net present value and I mean that that was the language that he understood but I also knew that you go to the chief marketing officer of that same organization and the language that he understood was grand ideas right how can we change the world how can we position our brand and and make our products as such where they are just um, the uh, the envy of everyone. Right. So it's that's kind of it's 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 the language. And so taking that to digital transformation and how do we bring that into um, people, processes and and technology? It all starts with people. So um, we were running a we're just starting out with a, a massive um, digital transformation program here. Um, we look at everything. Uh, through the lenses of people, processes, and technology. And that is exactly the sequence that matters. It's people first at all times. Um, there's really no, uh, it is the most important part uh, in terms of people driving the change, 
some people maybe be resisting to change because they don't understand it, right? I mean, it's, it's classic change management management theory. It starts with people. Now, at the same time, next comes processes. And that is uh, hugely important. And then really in the end, what follows is technology. So how to best approach it, uh, I would say is processes really tied to what the business wants to achieve. And that is a bit different in every organization. So our business is, is twofold. So we have one part of the business that deals with consultation, consultation among 30, 31, soon to be 32 with uh, Sweden's ascension, um, 32 allies. And we deal with uh, deterrence and defense, right? That it's it's almost like an insurance policy. Like we, we do have the military presence, the NATO force structure consisting of, of forces from 31 allies. And that has a deterring factor. And then if the time comes, and it's very closely linked, of course, um, it has a, a defensive factor if, if that is needed. And so that is the business that we're in. And it all goes back to what do we need to have as far as processes is concerned? How do people's skills and knowledge and experiences have to be shaped to support that excellence in consultation, deterrence, and defense? And then what technology choices need to be made? Like what makes sense as far as cloud is concerned, data analytics, data exploitation, um, artificial intelligence, all of these um, important topics that are now on everybody's lips, but it all goes back to what is the central idea of how you want to transform the business and the rest will follow. I was just speaking to a CIO in the UK who was talking about their teams and really building elite teams, you know, ensuring that the teams are upskilled and training is there and really understanding that people aspect of it first and really, really working closely with the people to ensure that they're, uh, you know, able to build out those processes much more efficiently because they're focusing on people first, as you mentioned. So mm -hmm. I appreciate those insights very, very much. So uh, this, that question, uh, in, a, in many respects, segues into the next question that I wanted to talk was about was, was innovation and technology. So um, as we've discussed, you work for a very large public organization. It's consensus-based program development. Um, and, you know, I talk to a number of CIOs and I find that when they talk about their careers, such as yourselves, there is that um, cross sector, different sector, um, you know, working throughout different sectors throughout their career. And many say it's so very important. I wanted to sort of first talk about how you view innovation and technology. And if you feel that sectors could collaborate together to enhance and accelerate tech innovation. The short answer is yes, they should collaborate. And the long answer is, uh, so it, it, it's kind of, we all have different vantage points, right? So I work in the public sector that has a unique vantage point. Um, others are in, in private industry, right? Or, or academia. So, uh, at NATO, we, we think of it as the triple helix of innovation and the triple helix is the public sector. Not that it comes first, but because I'm in it, I, I mentioned it first, it is industry. So, so companies that really do innovation and it is academia uh, research institutions that that drive things forward but are not necessarily the implementors of of that uh, of that innovation and so I think there's been a fundamental shift that if we go back um, 
50 years, 60 years, um, where the public sector was really the motor and the innovator. And so if we think of the, the Apollo program in NASA in the 1960s leading up to the moon landing in, in 69, it was the public sector, it was the, the US government that drove innovation in, in an unprecedented form, right? We, we have um, improvements because of the Apollo program, improvements in, I don't know, aerodynamics and, 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 and rocket technologies. And it gave us Teflon pans and, and all sorts of things um, that came from that. And that has completely changed. So we are an enabler to, to innovation. We are a facilitator as a public sector organization, but I really see industry doing a lot of the, a lot of the heavy lifting where we enable it. And so one thing that we have just uh, recently, we launched um, uh, Diana, which is the defense um, investment accelerator for the North Atlantic. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a cool acronym. And what's also related to that is the NATO Innovation Fund. So 23 of our allies got together, put a billion euro up um, into an innovation fund that that does direct innovation with um, with entrepreneurs, with, with smaller companies to, to give them the means to drive innovation forward. And then there's also um, an indirect part to that with um, uh, you know putting it in in other innovation funds. So we're putting a lot of our resources and kind of needs and requirements forward. And then at the same time, there is a, a strong involvement of academia to um, of research institutions that 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 drive this forward. So I think the collaboration needs to be there. Um, it it can only work if the three work together and it's um it's it's very very important thank you for sharing that information and the innovations fund sounds just phenomenal um i was recently speaking with a leader at one of the large tech companies about just the way they contribute to but how they they've lived with this for a lot longer than many companies have so they're they really you know talk about that idea of partnership and cross-sector working together so that they can lend and share their information. And, and I think academia as well, our own company puts out a lot of research uh, mm -hmm. around technology. And I think it's so important to be able to look at that as a tech leader, to really build out your programs and see, you know, design your path forward. So I appreciate that. And I want to talk lastly about a very hot topic called Gen AI, mm. uh, which so many CIOs and senior tech leaders are talking about. So just wondering how you're looking at Gen AI and LLM tools to enhance productivity within your organization. Are there any tips you could provide to other CIOs who are looking at implementing AI or LLMs? Yeah, it's a very big topic. And, and again, everyone kind of deals with it. And similarly to everyone, we're, we're kind of, we're walking on this very narrow bridge, right? Because what you want to do is you want to enable innovation. You want to enable um, the usage of a really, really interesting tool. And we've, we've all kind of played with it and, and, and kind of, you know, knock, knock the tires of it. So on one hand, you really want to enable it. On the other hand, we're also very, very conscious about cybersecurity, the data privacy, about just in general um, confidentiality of data. And I've been also a few highly publicized cases of, I mean, if you if you take your intellectual property and you dump it into an AI, you know, chat 
GPT, whatever engine it would be, um, it is it is dangerous because then that IP is out there in the wild. And so for an organization that has very, very strict um, confidentiality rules as far as data is concerned, right? I'm sure everyone can appreciate as to how how closely we guard and how, how much we are focusing on um, classifications of data and things like that, it, it bears a big risk, right? So the first thing that we did is put a uh, framework in place and really remind people um, as far as uh, the, the dangers is concerned if, if, if you put things in there. I think to use it responsibly is kind of like uh, rule number one that has to be done. Now, what we're also doing is we're experimenting with um, separate instances of AI, right? So that how could we harness the power of AI, feed it with data that is relevant? Because if you don't have particular volume and sample size of, of the data, it, it can very easily go into hallucinations and give you the wrong results. Uh, so how do you... Uh, get the the best out of AI in, you know, in our case, we're kind of looking at how can we do that where data does not filter out into, into the wild. The other thing that's important is that um, for companies, if, if you have a lot of people within a company or organization ask the same type of questions, the AI engine or, or people who would have access to that data can see what the company is preoccupied with. So also be really, really careful with that. And so that's kind of the idea that we have behind experimenting with um, with uh, AI solutions that would give us the power of AI, but really, really limit the confidentiality and the exposure of the data. Thank you so much. I think that's great advice to uh to have across the board for any technology company or anybody working in tech around how they can implement and plan their, um, you know, their, their experiences with Gen AI within their company. And I thank you very much for joining me today here, Manfred at CIO Leadership Live. I really appreciate it. Lee, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you too. And if you're interested in learning more about this interview or others, please don't hate, hesitate to visit us at CIO.com. Thanks again. Thank you.